Hello, AJT readers. It's me, Roz Mannon, at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. I'm your podcast co-host for this October 2023 Highlights podcast. Our co-host, Josh Levitsky, as you know, is on extended sabbatical as president of the American Society of Transplant. However, I'm joined today by Dr. Salil Kumar. He's an incoming assistant professor of medicine at MD Anderson uh, Medical Center, and he will be working as a heart failure cardiologist and specialist. Let me give you the run of show. We'll start off with Dr. Kumar's paper, Importance of Social Vulnerability on Long-Term Outcomes After Heart Transplant by Suarez, Pierre, and colleagues, I believe, at Ohio State. Uh, next, we'll shift to basic science, microbiota-dependent and independent effects of obesity on transplant rejection and hyperglycemia. This is by Jiping Li et al., Marissa Allegre's lab at the University of Chicago, followed by another interesting paper, Memory T Follicular Helper Cells Drive Donor-Specific Antibodies Independent of Memory B Cells and Primary Germinal Center and Alloantibody Formation. This is by Zheng et al. from uh, Emory University. And last but certainly not least, we have two interesting papers. One is a mini-review qualifying a novel clinical trial endpoint, IBOX, predictive of long-term kidney transplant outcomes by Klein and the representing the Transplant Therapeutic Consortium, as well as a, another original investigation validation of prediction system for risk of allograft failure in pediatric kidney transplant recipients, an international observational study published by Hogan, and a lengthy list of uh, collab pediatric collaborators, including Dr. Alex Luthi. There's also an accompanying editorial regarding the IBOX qualification process by Cop Coplin and Bood. So without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Kumar to tell us about his paper on social vulnerability and transplantation. Thank you for having me here, Dr. Mannon. It's a pleasure to be with you and to present to the AGT Readership. This fellowship has been incredibly gratifying so far. So I really love this study because it uses unique methods that I haven't seen in the transplant world yet. And what they, what this group does out of the University of Colorado is use unique methods to quantify a patient's social determinants of health and to correlate them with post-transplant outcomes. So as a refresher, social determinants of health are kind of a multidimensional and include various domains such as like access to transportation, the quality of education, socioeconomic status, food security. And these are things for us as transplant physicians we may not necessarily think about when we're evaluating our patients for transplant and managing them at one year, three years, and five years down the road. But as we'll see here, these are very important things to keep in mind for our patients as transplant physicians, not just as transplant cardiologists. So this group looked at quantifying social vulnerability using something called the Social Vulnerability Index. This is a index that's created from the United States Census data to determine social vulnerability based on 15 variables from the four main categories. The four main categories they draw from to determine a score, which ranges from 0, 1 to 100, include housing and transportation, minority status or language, socioeconomic status, and household composition and disability. So what this group was able to do is 
for each patient there in their in this in this cohort. So this database came from the OPTN registry from January 2012 to December of 2021. Is not only did they de- download all the standard OPTN variables, they also were able to download the zip codes for each patient. They looked at each zip code and based on the zip code, they were able to give a patient a social vulnerability index ranging from zero to 100%. And here, the higher the value, the higher the vulnerability for that patient. So a value of over 75% would indicate that someone is highly vulnerable and living in a highly vulnerable geographic area. So they take the zip code, they cross-reference or cross-walk it to their assigned census geography at the time of their transplantation. And so based on that census geography, they can use the 15 variables from these four main categories that constitute the social vulnerability index to calculate a number based on the zip code. This is a method that's been described and validated by the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. And so they believe that the um, social vulnerability index is a good surrogate for the social determinants of health that our patients are, are, are facing. And so for this cohort, they use a pre-specified cutoff of 75%. So they split the group into a reference group of 19,000 patients or so who had a social vulnerability index of less than 75%. And then a highly vulnerable group, um, which is patients who have a social vulnerability index of over 75%. And this constituted about 3,800 patients in this highly vulnerable group. Not surprisingly, they found that in their higher vulnerability, social vulnerability index group, that these patients are more commonly female, higher percentages of black recipients, Hispanic recipients, and they had lower education levels. They also were more commonly had using Medicaid or Medicare for their insurance coverage and were less covered by private insurance payers. So they went on to show that there was no stratification of survival at one year based on the social vulnerability index, but social vulnerability index came more of a factor for patients at three years and five years. So in their higher vulnerability group, they showed that there was about 75% survival at five years compared to an 80% survival in the comparison group. So that's about an absolute risk difference of about 5%. They then proceeded to show in a rigorous multivariable analysis that included several commonly cited predictors of five-year mortality, show that this still holds up. Social vulnerability index is definitely a driver uh, and correlates well with with mortality at three years and five years. Importantly, they show that Black recipients who are been known in the heart transplant world to have lower survival rates compared to their white recipient counterparts. Again, here, even when controlling for social vulnerability, showed that um, they have lower survival. So delving into their secondary endpoints, these patients had uh, in the higher vulnerability index had higher rates of hospital readmissions at one year, three years, and five years. There was um, more graft rejection of the cardiac allograft at three years and five years um, in the higher vulnerability group. 
And interestingly, um, in hypothesis generating, there was lower rates of de novo malignancy in these patients at one year, three years, and five years. And I say hypothesis generating because maybe these patients had lower medication adherence, um, making them at lower risk for developing malignancies at these time points. So overall, the big takeaways for me here from this study is that the social vulnerability index is correlated with poor midterm outcomes after heart transplantation and is associated with graft complications. And the kind of the, the impact of social vulnerability takes uh, the most impact probably after one year. And that's when the Kaplan Meyer curve in figure two starts to uh, splay out. This is, as the authors mentioned, a hypothesis generating study to show a correlation here and significantly more research is needed in identifying our patients' social determinants of health and how we can help them overcome their barriers to optimal transplant outcomes. For me, I think the biggest limitation here is that this, there's a big assumption that the social vulnerability index is representative of actual social determinants of health. And um, I think that previous research has sh helped us show that maybe it actually is representative of social determinants of health. And that's kind of a wrap up of the That paper. was re really nicely presented. Thank you so much, Salil. Um, uh, there have been a number of papers in Kidney World, which is where I'm from, that have looked at the SDI as a proxy for the social determinant. So one, I mean, as sad as it is, it's reassuring that this index is actually, I think, meaningful. As a non-heart transplant expert, I wondered if there's if you could elaborate if there's anything specific after year one of the transplant. For example, in kidney, the metrics for outcome are really based on one year outcomes, and so oftentimes now that programs have such a high prevalent population, they're often you know definitely referring patients out of the system back to their primary care physicians or their primary nephrologist, for example afterwards and so care becomes decentralized is that do you have a sense of why one year seems to be sort of a key point here i think part of this might be driven by the way that we um, evaluate transplant programs i think at one year is our focus of getting our patients to survive to one year as part of the regulatory board and the benchmark that we need to meet and so maybe as a transplant community we need to double re-up our efforts after one year to make sure that our patients are coming to appointments adhering to medications are able to see pharmacists still and i think that's that might be driving part of what's going on, but it's definitely just a hypothesis. Well, and I also know, I mean, some things haven't changed, you know, in terms of surveillance for rejection, and it's it tends to be somewhat invasive in cardiology still, even with some of the peripheral biomarker assay. It sounds like that you, that action really occurs within the first year, and then you're not, are you likely to have surveillance follow-up after year one, you think, or not necessarily no yeah the guidelines right now don't suggest routine okay. surveillance after one year with non-invasive biomarkers mm -hmm. or with uh with biopsies mm -hmm. and so i think this is this may be an opportunity especially with these non-invasive techniques that are coming out to try to um, screen for which grafts are having a subacute rejection and and in patients who may not be complying with their medications that we may not be aware of as as their cardiologists because we're not asking the right questions and finally your point about the dissociation between lower malignancy maybe a, low, well, a similar rate of, of infection 
but lower malignancy rates and the dissociation because higher rejection rates and graft failure rates, that also seems to be sort of interesting, although it may be difficult aligning the differences in terms of what they consider malignancy. For example, skin cancer may be very prevalent more in Caucasian than than African ancestry individuals, that kind of thing. But I thought that was a, a good point. And and certainly what the other aspect this paper doesn't really look at is access to to uh, heart transplantation. But again, very interesting study and appreciate you coming on today and talking about it. And my apologies to Suarez Pierre et al. Uh, you all are from Colorado, not Ohio State. And I think I was thinking of Ohio State because I think, Dr. Kumar, you may have trained there. So I had oh, the Buckeyes in my head and Brutus and all that. So my apologies. <laughs> I should say Colorado, the Bucks. So um, <laughs> this football-driven era, I should have known better. So yeah. my apologies. Can't, can't forget University of Colorado right now. Not right now. I can't. So um, uh, thank goodness we only played them in lacrosse and they still beat us. So anyway, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to move on. I have a couple of basic science papers to talk about. The first one is uh, microbiota-dependent uh, effects on transplant rejection by Lee and colleagues. This is follow-up work by Marissa Allegre at the University of Chicago in her laboratory uh, looking at the role of how the gut microbiome may actually affect patient outcomes in terms of their rejection rates as well as other metabolic situations. So we all know obesity is common in our patient population. There's often weight gain post-transplant. And certainly um, uh, work we've done has identified that the metabolic syndrome is is an important contributor and maybe an inflammatory condition. And certainly these metabolic diseases are high risk for cardiovascular disease and hence death with graft function. So this lab has been studying gut dysbiosis the so-called skewing of the gut microbiome to see how it affects outcomes and prior work uh, using a mouse model with a high-fat intake diet has led to hyperglycemia, a hyperinflammatory response associated with that and uh, accelerated rejection. And so this paper really just adds to that understanding by doing some additional work. And their basic model is taking a, a male black six mouse in specific pathogen-free conditions putting it on this high-fat diet for eight weeks, and then adding an MHC, major histocompatibility, disparate skin graft, and then evaluating those animals. So when you put animals on this diet, they become obese. They have higher fasting blood glucoses than control mice, and their microbiomes really differ, as shown in figure one. And importantly, when the, the skin grafts themselves have a shorter survival, again, we're talking rejection rates that instead of being 15 days or 12 days, but they are statistically significantly different. And interestingly, um, DSA titers go up in both of these uh, animal models, control versus high-fat diet, although it's important to point out that the diet in and of itself doesn't increase the level of DSA. The DSA titers are are quite equivalent between groups. And so... They explore this effect and look at whether they can dissociate, you know, the metabolic effects from the, the the immunological effects. They do so by a couple of manipulations. One is they use antibiotic treatment uh, in mice uh, for ten uh, prior to transplantation on a high fat diet. So um, they do reduce blood glucose and they significantly, but they don't affect uh, body weight. But they still um, and they also slow rejection. So the animals on antibiotics, when they don't have this on the high fat diet, actually have uh, similar rejection rates 
that are a bit slower and not accelerated. So clearly there's an impact uh, of antibiotics we know on the microbiome as well. And but really no change in weight, although a drop in blood, blood glucose. So already you can see that the effects of the fat diet can maybe affect some of the metabolic components differently based on the microbiome. They also put these, they also take animals that are germ free. And so they take the stool from a high fat fed mouse or a normal fed mouse and then do an adoptive transfer. This is a standard model in microbiome world and then look at how those animals do. And so even in germ-free conditions, if you repopulate the germ-free mouse with the high fat fecal content diet, they too have a, a different rejection pattern than sort of a standard repopulated animal and suggest that the microbiome transfer in and of itself can actually transfer the alloreactivity. They actually see higher CD4, alloreactive CD4 positive counts within those recipient animals, believe it or not. So the animals don't get fat and they don't have altered blood glucose, but they certainly have accelerated rejection. And they do a number of other um, manipulations that I could go into. I'll probably just summarize them by saying that there are both, I think that the high fat diet alone has an independent non-microbiome effect on the host immunity is one aspect using the germ-free animals and sort of a different effect on the metabolic conditions. And they actually um, do an adoptive transfer, and I'll probably mess up how I say this, but Allostipus under, under donkey is a, a gut commensal that has been previously shown on the high-fat diet uh, on these animals to induce higher blood glucoses, and so they actually do some adoptive transfer of this organism into to specific pathogen-free mice and show that they can alter uh, blood glucose metabolism and actually augment and see differences within the expression of TNF-alpha that's produced by peripheral blood leukocytes, um, those that are on the the um, uh, the A under donkey, those individual mice that get that organism actually have reduced inflammatory responses and less blood glucose perturbations. So they didn't mention actually doing a transplant in that model, but I believe that they did that in a previous paper and actually showed less a less accelerated rejection. So I again, I could probably talk about this paper for another hour because the manipulations are actually kind of cool and interesting. Again, the notion that you have these independent non-microbiome effects on rejection are, are sort of uh, astounding. But on the other hand, you see this pro-inflammatory effect based on the high-fat diet. So again, I think that this paper highlights that you know hyperglycemia is probably more dependent. The metabolic effects in this model from high fat are probably more dependent on the microbiome changes as opposed to the diet itself. And the diet itself appears to be a pro-inflammatory and, um, you know, sort of immune prompting diet. And so the authors really suggest in the end about dietary counseling of a reduced fat diet. I would say that we already kind of do that in patients and that we already are counseling them about cardiovascular disease and, and cholesterol, that the microbiome effects we probably see in our patients are, are, are multifactorial. They're related to the prophylactic antibiotics post-transplant. They're probably in part related to the immunosuppression that affects the microbiome. And so it's hard to tease apart it. I think you would never come in and say to a patient, eat whatever you'd like post-transplant. I think 
we would want to likely focus on ways of reducing inflammation. And certainly some of their data indicates that, you know, high fat diet may be uh, enhancing TNF. But I would also point out that there have been studies using a Tannersaft and an anti-TNF uh, therapy and has not really shown a significant uh, impact on graft rejection. And again, these animal models are great for dissecting specific components of alloimmunity. Um, and certainly, I, it's been shown by a number of groups that post-transplant dysbiosis is important. It can be a pro-inflammatory effect. You get a leakiness of the gut. You can trigger innate and adaptive immunity. And I sort of feel like the graft in and of itself is enough of a trigger that, you know, controlling the other aspects is important. And that's why I think this paper is kind of unique because it, it is able to dissect how diet shapes the microbiome and how the microbiome can affect metabolic activity and or, you know, some contribution to um, graft rejection. As a cardiologist, I'm sure you endorse that concept. Fully endorse it. And I think we have barely scratched the surface of how obesity, nutrition, and the microbiome is affecting our patients, especially in transplantation. I, I totally agree. And, and it's hard. I mean, I think you know, doing these animal studies, it's, you know, people can say, oh, well, they're not generalizable to people, but you have to have a very simple directed model in order to even see these effects and, and recognize their relevance and then start picking away at people and, and sort of identifying them. And I think there was a lot of interest in the microbiome and then people kind of got away from it because of the complexity. But I think there are, there is certainly I think the impact on metabolic diseases post-transplant, particularly metabolic syndrome, has been underappreciated. So more to come on that perhaps in a future podcast. The next paper I'll talk about, which I'm not sure I can do it as good justice, is by Zhang and colleagues. Uh, Raul Badel is the senior author uh, at Emory on memory T follicular helper cells. Uh, drive donor-specific antibodies. So uh, again, some of us, you know, antibody rejection, big topic, de novo, HLA, DSA, another big topic. You know, I think a lot of antibody-mediated injury and therapies have focused on B cells and plasma cells and memory B cells, but it's clear that helper T cells, particularly follicular helper T cells, you know, engage B cells and germinal centers and provide activation signals. And this paper really focuses on a very specific population, that is memory T follicular helper cells. I should have known they existed, but um, these tend to be identified in previous studies and are identified in germinal centers where when they are reactivated, they accelerate rejection, just like any other memory cell. So I, I don't think I can do complete justice this paper, and I'd encourage individuals, even clinicians, to try to make their way through it because it's extremely well written. But this, the authors hypothesize that these T follicular helper memory cells form post-transplant and play a crucial role in DSA formation after antigen encounter. Now, again, the notion here perhaps in humans is that even though they may not have detectable DSA by our standard methodologies post-transplant, when we see DSA formation de novo, it may be a memory response that the T follicular helper cells may remember. At least that's sort of the human equivalent of these mouse studies. So the, this group um, uses a skin graph model and looks at the kinetics of T follicular helper cells using a number of peripheral T cell markers. Um, and show that they expand, particularly after a second transplanted graft is shown in figure 
Uh, one is the model, and they also do some contralateral studies to look at where the draining lymph node is. And they assess that if memory T helper cells that are um, allosensitized more rapidly differentiate and enhance antibody production, and they do so, they use these very, you know, sort of cutesy congenic animals where they can actually track the CD45 positive cells by a different phenotypic marker. There's sort of alleles that they can follow. Um, and using this adoptive transfer technique, they take, um, you know, they take the sensitized cells, put them in naive mice, and then look at the acceleration of rejection over time. And they show that if you take these memory cells out and put them in a naive mouse, you can actually accelerate rejection with them being present and augment uh, donor-specific antibodies, really independent of the host having B-cell memory. And to further sort of, I think, prove the role of, of B cell, um, B cells and T cells, they do two different manipulations. One, they use hosts that are T cell receptor knockouts, meaning they don't have T cells. They uh, do an adoptive transfer and then they rechallenge with the graft and again show that kinetics that occur and the, and, and with accelerated rejection. And so if you put in T cells from another animal and, and the host doesn't have T cells, the mediators of rejection are the adoptively transferred cells. And so they demonstrate that um, the memory T follicular helper cell population expands and actually can lead to accelerated rejection and also the development of, 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 of donor DSA. And so they do some other studies that I won't get into. They use ovalve human grafts where there is a specific um, antigen and specific host responses. And they also look at LCMV, which is the murine equivalent of CMV, and, and do similar manipulations looking at uh, memory responses to a specific antigen as well as uh, an infectious antigen. They also kind of look at whether you need to have a germinal center or B cells present, and they do so initially by using anti-CD154, where that, that by using this treatment, they actually reduce the frequency of, uh, of uh, germinal center B cells. And it doesn't, I, I believe it did not have an effect on the T follicular helper population necessarily, but it, it mainly affects the population of B cells. And, and in order to have a better absence of B cells, they actually did these studies in a B cell knockout animal, an animal that lacks CD40. So rather than just using an antibody blockade, they did a complementary study with CD40 knockout and show that the follicular helper T cells in these animals can also expand um, and also can mediate uh, antibody mediated um, the development of de novo DSA, so to speak, or uh, DSA after transplantation. So again, memory T follicular helper cells seem to be almost autonomous on their own. They don't require um, the presence of other T cells other than their own friends, and they don't necessarily require the presence of a germinal uh, center. I think an important study is really one of the last figures in figure six is where they look at the impact of another co-stimulatory blockade molecule, CTLA4IG, and in this, and that blocks uh, CD28, uh, B71, B72, and they actually show that by treating in this model, you can completely inhibit follicular T helper cell-driven uh, DSA formation. So what does this all mean and why is it important? I think as we continue to struggle with the management of patients, you know, we don't have therapies that are directed towards T follicular helper cells. I mean, I was always taught that if you see antibody, you need to treat not just the B cells, but you need to get the T cell responses under control. And it's not clear to me reading these papers that 
standard immunosuppression will have any effect on these T follicular helper memory cells. However, it's clear that using costimulatory blockade, whether it's CD40 or your uh, CD40 ligand, or whether you're looking at CD, you know, blockade blocking CD28, uh, for example, with CTLA4IG, that they may be able to control these follicular helper T cells, and that you know, looking at therapies that can mitigate the maturation of follicular helper cells to memory cells to promote, you know, germinal center formation is probably a critical pathway. And it's even more critical if we're going to do Xeno. There is no doubt in my mind that, you know, we all have an inherent population of memory T follicular helper cells so that we are not getting transplants from um, other organisms. So, Again, the opportunity to now think about follicular helper memory cells as a target of therapy and antibody-mediated injury is important, and certainly the role and the susceptibility of these pathways to costimulatory blockade. And costimulatory blockade, as you guys know, has been really sort of a fundamental part of non-human primate xeno studies and certainly um, being considered as an additional therapy in, in the human studies as we progress in those pig models. And that's all I have to say. And I, again, I apologize to the authors. I am a quasi-basic scientist from the olden days, so I may not have done justice, but I'd suggest that you go ahead and take a look at that paper. All right, so let's move on. Um, the next paper we'd like to talk about is by Hogan and DeVard as the co-first authors, but a large international group called The Validation of a Prediction System for Risk of Kidney Allograft Failure in pediatric kidney transplant recipients, an international observational study with senior authors, Rachel Patzer and Alex Luthi. So some of you may remember that there's this thing called the iBox, the integrated box, which is being used as a multi-composite score to reflect long-term graph survival. And as we know, predictors for long-term graph survival are a continued challenge, and this is also true in children. And there have been a couple of models that were developed in Europe and France, um, but they really have not been validated. And they're probably less racially generalizable when you look at U.S. transplant populations. So this is really sort of an, an interesting and, and sort of a phenomenal work because, you know, pediatric transplants probably only account for about 700 transplants in the U.S. per year compared to the several thousands we do in adults. In this study, the investigators, which come from 20 European and U.S. transplant centers, pooled data from about 1,400 different um, pediatric transplant patients from 2004 and 2017 to investigate whether the integrated iBox tool, which has been uh, developed in adult kidney transplant patients, um, might be utilized in kids. And so the aim of the study was to assess the accuracy of the IBOX in predicting outcomes out to 10 years in pediatric recipients. Again, in looking at all of these 1,400 patients, um, they excluded anybody with primary non-function and folks without any having a biopsy. So it left them a total of 706 uh, recipients, and they pooled all of that data into a centralized database. Now, if some of you recall the iBox, which the validation, the, the development of and the validation study were published in the British Medical Journal in 2019, again, uh, by the Paris Transplant Group with Lupi as I think the first author, they utilized several clinical variables and developed a model, uh, which included an estimated GFR, urine protein creatinine ratio, de novo DSA or HLA DSA detection, and then 
biopsy figure uh, characteristics, which included um, BAMF scores of I plus T, so inflammation and tubulitis, multi, my, microvascular injury, which is paratubular capillaritis and glomerulitis, the presence or absence of chronic transplant glomerulopathy, and the extent of fibrosis and atrophy, or IFTA, as well as the time post-transplant. And they identified that each of these is individually predictive of graft loss, but put together created a very powerful score to correlate with three, five, seven, and 10-year graft failure. In this paper, they also utilized those features, but also developed an abbreviated IBOX, that is, uh, individuals that had no biopsy. And so the time points of testing of these other clinical variables, typically in the context of biopsy, were utilized. In individuals, if they had multiple assessments, they selected one at random and also had a couple of sensitivity analyses, which I'll talk about uh, momentarily later at the end of this discussion. So uh, again, the primary outcome here is graft failure, death-censored, graft failure being um, retransplant and dialysis. And again, on that point, the IBOX does not identify individuals who will uh, die with a functioning graft. When you look at this patient population, it's interesting. It's about 62% male, sort of reflects uh, adult transplant. Um, about 400 were European recipients, 300 American, the median age. It was uh, listed, I think, was about 12 races not mentioned, 12% with delayed graft function, uh, about 75% had deceased donor, 30% living donor, kind of what you would normally see here. And interestingly, more preemptives in the U.S. versus in Europe, and Table 1 shows that information. The median time to this evaluation with serum, you know, with serum urine and biopsy was about 9.1 months. The estimated GFR at the time of evaluation mean was 62. Uh, urine PC ratio was 0.1. And about 16% of the cohort had de novo DSA. There were only 80 graft failures in this cohort. Again, I don't think this is surprising because pediatric patients in the current U.S. allocation scheme, at least, tend to get pretty good kidneys. So overall, the C statistic um, I was about 0.825 for three year and very similar levels, although it went down um, over times down to 0.8 uh, at 10 years. And the calibration plots show pretty good alignment. The, the abbreviated IBOX did reasonably well, a little bit lower C statistic of about 0.18 down to 0.798 for 10-year uh, prediction. And in their seven sensitivity analysis of 359 uh, individuals with um, without without um, with just one biopsy, those individuals had a C statistic that was about 0.792, and they did a similar analysis of individuals who were under 18 at all times when they were assessed. So overall, I think the IBOX score appeared to be pretty accurate in predicting graph failure in this cohort of kids with, you know, pretty good discrimination and calibration as previously published. I think it's important to note that it is generalizable. Again, while other pediatric studies have included things like recipient age and donor type and age and cold ischemic time, they did not really end up in the final model of the IBOX, although they were included in the original derivation if you go back to that BMJ paper. And I think one thing that's interesting is that the C statistic does fall over time. I think this reflects probably less precision as you get further and further out. But I think overall, this has been a step forward. It's a step forward 
for, for, you know, not only, you know, clinical care as an opportunity. And some of you would say, oh, it's no surprise because we know lower GFR and proteinuria indicate uh, graft failure over time. But I think it really may help open up transplant trials as a new endpoint. I think in kids, it's been very difficult to have sufficient patient populations to meet primary endpoints. And an example used in the discussion is the cradle study, which was an Everolimus study uh, using utilizing reduced TAC and steroid withdrawal. And really, the patient population ended up being relatively small for that study. So having something where you have a score and you could use it as a as an additional uh, endpoint would really, I think, help you know drug development and certainly could be applied uh, in those studies, uh, assuming FDA approval to do that. I would say that there are some limitations um, because of the low rate of GLAF loss, which is about a little under 10%. The group could really not do any additional sensitivity analyses. And some other thoughts are provided by by Matthew Sipak, uh, Anna Francis, and um, Steve Chadban and their accompanying editorial, Predicting Graph Survival Impedes uh, Transplant Does the Box Fit. So I suggest that you take a look at that um, article. Uh, even if you're not a pediatrician like me, I still think it has uh, value um, in terms of where the field is heading. And then the second paper, uh, again, talking about the IBOX as a predictor, is that by Klein and colleagues from the Transplant Therapeutic Consortium, qualifying a novel clinical trial endpoint, IBOX, predictive of long-term kidney transplant outcomes. This is really a special article. It is also accompanied by an editorial by Clemens Bood and um, uh, Bruce Kaplan. The, the goal of this article, I think, is really to talk about um, how the IBOX has been uh, considered through um, federal for regulatory agencies to develop it as a drug development tool. So the notion um, that, you know, there's been a stalling of therapeutic development is something that I outlined back when I was AST president, was part of my AST presidential address in 2013, if you'd like to see a very stimulating recording, and was certainly highlighted by the societies, AST and ASTS, um, and formulated in 2016, published review about the barriers to drug development. And finally, in 2017, after a lot of discussion with both FDA and other agencies, um, the development of Transplant Therapeutic Consortium occurred through the Critical Path Institute, which is a private-public partnership with the FDA. And this paper outlines the major activity of that organization, which includes uh, biopharmas, uh, diagnostic companies, academic institutions, uh, professional societies, and the uh, federal government, as well as regulatory agencies, to develop a data-driven uh, pathway to develop new uh, endpoints for drug development. I've talked a little bit about the IBOX previously, so I won't get into it, but this paper uh, outlines the regulatory submissions that have occurred for IBOX to date. Importantly, uh, utilizing the 4,000 or so patients in the original IBOX cohort, mass large data sets were included uh, and sent to the TTC for data curation and for, you know, sort of centralized um, development in terms of a massive database that could be interactive with all the variables needed for the IBOX. And this includes uh, the Mayo Clinic, Rochester Database, Helsinki Hospital. I can't say that, right? And then the two benefit trials, both benefit and benefit extended. So it included an additional 2,500 
individuals that had assessment of the eye box at one year for prediction of, of um, uh, what five-year death-censored graph failure. Again, why has therapy been sort of stalled? I think the primary endpoints of patient graph survival and rejection at one year, as you all know, have really precluded the ability to show superiority and we're sort of left with inferiority studies. So the notion was to use the IBOX as a reasonably likely surrogate of late graph failure. It would limit having to do massive trials to, to show that. And many of us know that that acute rejection has really been dissociated from late graph failure. If you look at the Bilatacep studies, rejection rates may have been higher than control patient populations. But if you look long-term at the reports, uh, those patients on Bilatacep long-term compared to uh, cyclosporin-based therapy have had better GFRs and better long-term graph survival. This paper outlines this regulatory submission process. Um, it includes a submission to the European Medicines Agency. Um, the submission was to have it as a clinical trial endpoint. Uh, it, the paper points out that in December 2002, the EMA approved the IBOX um, as a secondary endpoint. Again, why is this important? It's important because this is the first qualified endpoint in transplant ever in EMA history, and also, and also the only, the fifth ever uh, qualified endpoint for the EMA. And even as a secondary endpoint, if you show superiority uh, in the IBOX as a secondary endpoint, this would be at least one part of a key feature for conditional market authorization. So certainly in Europe, it would advance the development of transplant therapeutics. The submission process is more extensive um, in, in the U.S. And currently, I think I can at least uh, state with, as a fact that the second phase of a qualification plan uh, has been submitted, and that's somewhat reflected on figure one, which can be, uh, I think the arrows is 2023 and keeps going. If you enjoy the statistical analyses and understanding the assessments and how these were aligned, I think this paper is for you. It really shows a tremendous amount of collaborative work, which is highlighted by the Boot and, and Kaplan uh, editorial uh, identifying the need for new qualified endpoints and also for the opportunity for transplant groups and organizations to work together collaboratively. So with that, I'd like to thank you for your attention and we'll see you next month. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter.